Part two of the Notch on the Axe from the Lock and Key Library. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Julie Formalichem. The Lock and Key Library. Edited by Julian Hawthorne. The Notch on the Axe. A Story a la Mode by William Makepeace Thackeray. Part two. Chapter three. Are you of our fraternity? I see you are not. The secret which Mademoiselle de Bechamel confided to me in her mad triumph and wild hoyden spirits, she was but a child, poor thing, poor thing, scarce fifteen, but I love them young. A folly not unusual with the old. Here Mr. Pinter thrust his knuckles into his hollow eyes, and, I am sorry to say, so little regardful was he of personal cleanliness, that his tears made streaks of white over his garden-dark hands. Ah, at fifteen, poor child, thy fate was terrible. Go to. It is not good to love me, friend. They prosper not who do. I define you. You need not say what you are thinking.' In truth, I was thinking, if girls fall in love with this sallow, hook-nosed, glass-eyed, wooden-legged, dirty, hideous old man, with his sham teeth, they have a queer taste. That is what I was thinking. Jack Wilkes said the handsomest man in London had but half an hour's start of him, and without vanity I am scarcely uglier than Jack Wilkes. We were members of the same club at Madame Hamabi, Jack and I, and had many a merry night together. Well, sir, I— Mary Scotland knew me but as a little hunchback music-master, and yet, and yet, I think, she was not indifferent to her David Riz, and she came to misfortune. They all do, they all do. Sir, you're wandering from your point— I said with some severity, for really, for this old humbug to hint that he had been the baboon who frightened the club at Medmum, that he had been in the Inquisition at Valladolid, that under the name of D. Riz, as he called it, he had known the lovely Queen of Scots, was a little too much. Sir, then I said, you were speaking about Miss Bashmal. I really have no time to hear all of your biography. Faith, the good wine gets into my head. I should think so, the old topper. Four bottles, all but two glasses. To return to poor Blanche. As I sat laughing, joking with her, she let slip a word, a little word which filled me with dismay. Someone had told her a part of the secret, the secret which has been divulged scarce thrice in three thousand years. THE SECRET OF THE FREEMASONS. DO YOU KNOW WHAT HAPPENS TO THOSE UNINITIATE WHO LEARN THAT SECRET? TO THOSE WRETCHED MEN THE INITIATE WHO REVEAL IT? AS PINTER SPOKE TO ME, HE LOOKED THROUGH AND THROUGH ME WITH HIS HORRIBLE PIERCING GLANCE, SO THAT I SAT QUITE UNEASILY ON MY BENCH. HE CONTINUED, DID I QUESTION HER AWAKE? I KNEW SHE WOULD LIE TO ME. POOR CHILD! I loved her no less because I did not believe a word she said. 
I loved her blue eyes, her golden hair, her delicious voice, that was true in song, though when she spoke, false as ably. You are aware that I possess in rather a remarkable degree what we have agreed to call the mesmeric power. I set the unhappy girl to sleep. Then she was obliged to tell me all. It was as I had surmised. Gobi de Mouchy, my wretched, besotted, miserable secretary, in his visits to the chateau of the Marquis de Bechamel, who was one of our society, had seen Blanche. I suppose it was because she had been warned that he was worthless, and poor, artful, and a coward, she loved him. She wormed out of the besotted wretch the secrets of our order. Did he tell you the number one? I asked. She said yes. Did he, I further inquired, tell you the— Oh, don't ask me, don't ask me, she said, writhing on the sofa, where she lay in the presence of the Marquis de Bechmel, her most unhappy father. Poor Bechmel, poor Bechmel, how pale he looked as I spoke. Did he tell you, I repeated with a dreadful calm, the number two? She said, yes. The poor old Marquis rose up, and clasping his hands, fell on his knees before Count Gail... Bah! I went by a different name, then. What's in a name? That we call a rosy cushion by any other name will smell as feet. Monsieur, he said, I am old, I am rich, I have five hundred thousand livres of rent in Picardy. I have half as much in Artois. I have two hundred and eighty thousand on the Grand Livre. I am promised by my sovereign a dukedom, and his orders with a reversion to my heir. I am a grandee of Spain of the first class, and Duke of Olovento. Take my titles, my ready money, my life, my honour, everything I have in the world, but don't ask the third question. Godefroy de Bouillon, Comte de Bichemel, Grandee of Spain and Prince of Olovento. In our assembly, what was the oath you swore? The old man writhed as he remembered its terrific purport. Though my heart was racked with agony, and I would have died I cheerfully. Died, indeed, as if that were a penalty. To spare yonder lovely child a pang, I said to her calmly, Blanche de Bechemel. Did Gobi de Mouchy tell you secret number three? She whispered a wee that was quite faint, faint and small, but her poor father fell in convulsions at her feet. She died suddenly that night. Did I not tell you those who I love come to no good? When General Bonaparte crossed the Saint-Bernard, he saw in the convent an old monk with a white beard, wandering about the corridors, cheerful and rather stout, but mad, mad as a march hare. General, I said to him, did you ever see that face before? He had not. He had not mingled much with the higher classes of our society before the revolution. I knew the poor old man well enough. He was the last of a noble race, and I loved his child. And did she die by— "'Man, did I say so? 
Did I whisper the secrets of Bemgericht? I say she died that night, and he, the heartless, the villain, the betrayer. You saw him seated in yonder curiosity shop, by yonder guillotine, with his scoundrelly head in his lap. You saw how slight that instrument was. It was one of the first which guillotine made, and which he showed to private friends in a hangar in the Rue Picpus, where he lived. The invention created some little conversation among scientific men at the time, though I remember a machine in Edinburgh, of a very similar construction, two hundred, well, many, many years ago, and at the breakfast which Guillotine gave, he showed us the instrument, and much talk arose among us as to whether people suffered under it. And now I must tell you what befell the traitor who had caused all this suffering. Did he know that a poor child's death was a sentence? He felt a cowardly satisfaction that with her was gone the secret of his treason. Then he began to doubt. I had means to penetrate all his thoughts as well as to know his acts. Then he became a slave to horrible fear. He fled in abject terror to a convent. They still existed in Paris, and behind the walls of Jacobins the wretch thought himself secure. Poor fool! I had but to set one of my sonambulists to sleep. Her spirit went forth, and spied a shuddering wretch in a cell. She described the street, the gate, the convent, the very dress which he wore, and which you saw to-day. And now this is what happened. In his chamber in the Rue Saint-Honoré at Paris, sat a man alone, a man who has been maligned, a man who has been called a knave and charlatan, a man who has been persecuted even to the death, it is said, in Roman inquisitions, forsooth, and elsewhere. Ha! <laughs> ha! A man who has a mighty will! And looking toward a Jacobin's convent, of which from his chamber he could see the spines and trees, this man willed, and it was not yet dawn, and he willed, and one who was lying in his cell in the convent of Jacobins awake, and shuddering with terror for a crime which he had committed, fell asleep. But though he was asleep, his eyes were open, and after tossing and writhing, and clinging to the pallet, and saying, No, I will not go, he rose up, and donned his clothes, a grey coat, a vest of white peak, black satin small clothes, ripped silk stockings, and a white stock with a steel buckle, and he arranged his hair, and he tied his cue, all the while being in that strange somnolence which walks, which moves, which flies sometimes, which sees, which is indifferent to pain, which obeys. And he put on his hat, and he went forth from his cell, and though the dawn was not yet, he trod the corridors as seeing them and he passed into the cloister, and then into the garden where lie the ancient dead, and he came to the wicket, which brother Jerome was opening just at the dawning, and the crowd was already waiting with their cans and bowls to receive the arms of the good brethren. And he passed through the crowd, and went on his way. And the few people then abroad who marked him said, Tiens, how very odd he looks! He looks like a man walking in his sleep. This was said by various persons. 
by milkwomen with their cans and carts, coming into the town, by roisterers who had been drinking at the taverns of the barrier, for it was mid-lend, by the sergeants of the watch, who eyed him sternly as he passed near their halberds. But he passed on, unmoved by their halberds, unmoved by the cries of the roisterers, by the market women coming with their milk and eggs. He walked through the Rue Saint-Ornerie, I say, by the Rue Rambouteau, by the Rue Saint-Antoine, by the King's Chateau de Bastille, by the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, and he came to number twenty-nine in the Rue Picpus, a house which then stood between a court and garden. That is, there was a building of one story with a great coach-door. Then there was a court, around which were stables, coach-houses, offices. Then there was a house, a two-storied house with a paran in front. Behind the house was a garden, a garden of two hundred and fifty French feet in length, and as one hundred feet of France equal one hundred and six feet of England, this garden, my friend, equalled exactly two hundred and sixty-five feet of British measure. In the centre of the garden was a fountain and a statue, or, to speak more correctly, two statues. One was recumbent, a man. Over him, sabre in hand, stood a woman. The man was Olofern, the woman was Judith. From the head, from the trunk, the water gushed. It was the taste of the doctor. Was it not a troll of taste? At the end of the garden was a doctor's cabinet of study. My faith! A singular cabinet, and singular pictures. Decapitation of Charles Premier at Whitehall. Decapitation of Montrose at Edinburgh. Decapitation of Saint-Marc. When I tell you that he was a man of taste, charming. Through this garden, by these statues, up these stairs, went a pale figure of him who, the porter said, knew the way of the house. He did. Turning neither right nor left, he seemed to walk through the statues, the obstacles, the flower-beds, the stairs, the doors, the tables, the chairs. In the corner of the room was that instrument which Guillotine had just invented and perfected. One day he was to lay his own head under his own axe. Peace be to his name. With him I deal not. In a frame of mahogany, neatly worked, was a board with a half-circle in it, over which another board fitted. Above was a heavy axe, which fell, you know how. It was held up by rope, and when this rope was untied, or cut, the steel fell. To the story which I now have to relate, you may give credence, or not, as you will. The sleeping man went up to that instrument. He laid his head in it, asleep. Asleep? He then took a little penknife out of the pocket of his white dimity waistcoat. He cut the rope, asleep. The axe descended on the head of the traitor and villain. The notch in it was made by the steel buckle of his stock, which was cut through. A strange legend has got abroad, that after the deed was done, the figure rose, took the hat from the basket, walked forth through the garden, 
and by the screaming porters at the gate, and went and laid itself down at the morgue. But for this I will not vouch, only of this be sure. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. More and more the light peeps through the chinks. Soon, amidst music ravishing, the curtain will rise, and the glorious scene be displayed. Adieu, remember me. Ah, it is dawn, Pinto said, and he was gone. I am ashamed to say that my first movement was to clutch the cheque which he had left with me, and which I was determined to present the very moment the bank opened. I know the importance of these things, and that men change their mind sometimes. I sprang through the streets to the great banking-house of Manasseh and Duke Street. It seemed to me as if I actually flew as I walked. As the clock struck ten, I was at the counter, and laid down my cheque. The gentleman who received it, who was one of the Hebrew persuasion, as were the other two hundred clerks of the establishment, having looked at the draft with terror in his countenance, then looked at me, then called to himself two of his fellow clerks, and queer it was to see all the reculum beaks over the paper. "'Come, come,' said I, "'don't keep me here all day. Hand me over the money short, if you please.' For I was, you see, a little alarmed." and so determined to assume some extra bluster. "'Will you have the kindness to step into the parlour to the partners?' the clerk said, and I followed him. "'What, again?' shrieked the bald-headed, red-whiskered gentleman, whom I knew to be Mr. Manasseh. "'Mr. Salatia, this is too bad. Leave me with this gentleman, S. And the clerk disappeared. "'Sir,' he said, "'I know how you came by this.' The counterpinter gave it to you. It is too bad. I honour my parents. I honour their parents. I honour their bills. But this one of Grandma's is too bad. It is upon my word now. She have been dead these five and thirty years, and this last four months she has left a burial place and took to drawing on our house. It's too bad, Grandma. It is too bad. And he appealed to me, and tears actually trickled down to his nose. "'Is it a Countess Sidonia's cheque or not?' I asked, haughtily. "'But I tell you, she's dead. It's a shame. It's a shame it is, Grandmama.' And he cried, and wiped his great nose in his yellow pocket-handkerchief. "'Look here, will you take pounds instead of guineas? She's dead, I tell you. It's no go. Take the pounds. One thousand pounds. Ten nice, neat, crisp, hundred-pound notes. And go away with you, do.' "'I will have my bond, sir, or nothing,' I said, and I put on an attitude of resolution which I confess surprised even myself. "'Very well,' he shrieked with many oaths. "'Then you shall have nothing, <laughs> nothing but a policeman. Mr. Abenego, call a policeman. Take that, your humbug and impostor.' And here, with an abundance of frightful language, which I dare not repeat, the wealthy banker abused and defied me. Au bout du compte, what was I to do, if a banker did not choose to honour a cheque drawn by his dead grandmother? I began to wish I had my snuff-box back. I began to think I was a fool for changing that little old-fashioned gold with a slip of strange paper. 
Meanwhile the banker had passed from his fit of anger to a paroxysm of despair. He seemed to be addressing some person invisible, but in the room. "'Look here, madam. You've really been coming here too strong. A hundred thousand in six months, and now a thousand more. The house can't stand it. It won't stand it, I say. What? Oh, mercy, mercy!' As he uttered these words, a hand fluttered over the table in the air. It was a female hand, that which I had seen the night before. That female hand took a pen from the green baize table, dipped it in a silver inkstand, and wrote on a quarter of a sheet of foolscap on the blocking-book. "'How about the diamond robbery? If you do not pay, I will tell him where they are.' "'What diamonds? What robbery? What was this mystery?' "'That will never be ascertained, for the wretched man's demeanour instantly changed.' "'Certainly, sir. Oh, certainly,' he said, forcing a grin. "'How will you have the money, sir? All right, Miss Abenigo. This way out.' "'I hope I shall often see you again,' I said, on which our own poor Manasseh gave a dreadful grin and shot back into his parlour. I ran home, clutching the ten delicious crisp hundred pounds, and the dear little fifty which made up the account. I flew through the street again, I got to my chambers, I bolted the outer doors, I sank back in my great chair, and slept. My first thing on waking was to feel for my money. Perdition! Where was I? Ah! On the table before me was my grandmother's snuff-box, and by its side one of those awful, those admirable sensation novels which I had been reading, and which are full of delicious wonder. But that a guillotine is still to be seen at Mr. Gale's number 47, High Holborn, I give you my honour. I suppose I was dreaming about it. I don't know. What is dreaming? What is life? Why shouldn't I sleep on the ceiling? and am i sitting on it now or on the floor i'm puzzled but enough if the fashion for sensation novels goes on i tell you i will write one and fifty volumes for the present dixie but between ourselves this pinto who fought at the Coliseum was nearly being roasted by the inquisition and sang duets at holyrood i'm rather sorry to lose him after three little bits of roundabout papers End of The Notch on the Axe by William Makepeace Thackeray